Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. This week's episode is kindly supported by the LV Pump, which is the world's first silent and wearable pump. I've been using it for about three weeks now and I have to say it is amazing. It fits inside my bra and it operates on a chargeable battery. So I've been pumping every evening whilst I'm bathing Jessie, but it's totally silent. So she doesn't even realize. And the great thing about it is that it's really gentle. So even when I was still a bit sore, it wasn't painful and I was still getting a brilliant production from it. One of the things that I especially love about it is how easy it is to clean. It's not the sexiest feature, but as you'll know, as a busy mum, I can't be stood there for like 10, 15 minutes cleaning fiddly parts of a pump. And it's just brilliant. It only takes me a couple of minutes to clean it, which for me is a huge benefit. So if you fancy trying it, and I highly recommend that you do, the people at LV have kindly given us 10% off. So if you use Motherkind 10, you will get 10% off. On to this week's episode. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. I hope you're all having a fantastic week and half term if, like Jessie, your children have the week off, school or nursery. This week's episode is with Julia Samuel MBE. I cannot wait to share it with you. Julia invited me to her home and we sat in her therapy room and had a beautiful conversation about transition and change. Julia is a psychotherapist. She is one of the UK's leading counsellors and she's best known for her work on grief and loss. You may have read her book, Grief Works, which is absolutely fantastic. She is also the founder patron of Child Bereavement UK, which she set up to teach authorities and professionals how to support families and rebuild their lives after loss. And I'm personally very grateful to Julia because her work supported one of my dearest friends when she tragically lost her twins at 26 weeks. Julia's been married to her husband for four decades, but she says she's had five different marriages, all with the same man. They have four children together and six grandchildren. She was also a very close friend of the late Princess Diana, and she is Prince George's godmother. This conversation was underlined by her new book called This Too Shall Pass, which is all about the challenge and power of dealing with change. And we talk about specifically the change of becoming a mother, which Julia says is more complex and challenging than ever before. And we also talk about the constant change of family dynamics and how we can use these moments of transition and even crisis to help us grow. It was a very tender conversation. Julia really was the epitome of kindness and self-compassion. She is incredibly wise, also really funny, and offline swore like a trooper. I think she might have sworn on the podcast a few times, so be careful if you have little ears around. I really adored her, and I know I often say that about the guests, but it's such a privilege to be able to sit in front of these, these men and women who have done so much 
profound and deep work and to be able to chat to them and share it with you all it does feel like it does feel like a gift so i hope you really enjoy it if you did as ever please share it with someone else you think may enjoy it my focus at the moment is trying to reach more and more mums and parents with the podcast and i need your help to do that so if you know someone that you think might benefit from the conversation please just open whatsapp or your email copy the link and ping it over to them because it really really will help me grow the podcast and as i say i do think the wisdom of the guests that i get on needs to be heard far and wide so i would be very grateful if you would help me do that and here is this week's episode so julia welcome to the podcast i'm overjoyed to be sat with you today really lovely to meet you lovely to be talking about parenting and children and so the new book is called this too shall pass and you divide it into five sections of all the different big transitions and changes that we go through I love the bit on family. We're going to talk about that a lot. That's my thing. That's my thing. I wanted to talk to you first about change and transitions in general. And there's this quote that I just loved it so much. And I don't normally do this, but I want to read it out. Okay. I'm thrilled. I love being quoted. (laughs) If we have the courage to face our difficulties with self-compassion, learn to know ourselves rather than distract ourselves, then change will bring growth so many ideas and some big ideas in there but so eloquently put (laughs) so tell us why is change so hard when as you say it is the only constant why do we find it so hard I think it's many different things I mean some people do embrace change by the way but I mean I think a lot of people don't and there's a big difference between change that is imposed on you like being sacked or a divorce that you don't want or being evicted from your home or your country so imposed change is change with the volume turned up and then there's you know developmental change as we go through life the change in within our relationships as we mature and grow and then also you know all the sort of changes that naturally happen There is a generalisation which I'll go into, but of course there's lots of uniqueness, which is true for everybody depending on what's happening to them. But I think the main thing, and I think particularly true in the 21st century, is that we seek the safety of familiarity. You know, even if it's the sort of poisonous safety of our own kind of circular thinking and shitty committee, because you kind of feel I've got there and nothing's going to be worse. It's not risky. The thing about change is that it forces you out of your comfort zone into unknown territory where what you believe, what you trust, all your kind of normal defence mechanisms may be tested. So it tests your belief. It tests your sense of identity. So one of the huge shifts, which I know we'll talk about, is becoming a mother. And we have this image and dream of what a mother is. And then the reality of it is very, very different. So the shift in who you imagine the mother you'd like to be or you thought you would be, the mother you find yourself to be, the child that is triggered as you're a mother, all of that, and the environment that we're in. So what we see around us is good mothering, you know, all the perfected Instagram posts around mothering. So all of that influences us. And it comes at a time of enormous social change and psychological change, 
where there's more change and faster than there ever has been in history before, so that we can't predict our future in the way that we could by looking at the past. So we're kind of constantly on moving territory. It's also, from my perspective, the time that we have more psychological knowledge, more psychological support, more psychological wisdom to manage all of that than we have also had ever before. I mean, it's a good time to be alive and learning these things. I think that's what is the real sort of dichotomy of life in a way, isn't it? Is that all all the good things in my life have come from discomfort or stretching that comfort zone. But only because I think the biggest change that I went through was my family imploded when I was 22. But I was so lucky because I got therapy. So I was able to reflect on it and use that change for growth which is what you talk about isn't it I mean in essence that's what the, the book, book is, is about but there then two things about my the essence one is that you can't fight it you can't fix it and you can't will it to be different what happens when you try to do those things you get stuck and the research is completely kind of irrefutable that those that don't face change don't let change change them and let them grow they have more difficulty when they face change in the future but they also have less joy and less success in life so it stifles you also if you look at it from a darwinian perspective we are actually wired physiologically to evolve and adapt so we have it in us it's only our thinking brain and our fear that stops us so it's stopping us do what we are naturally organically built to do Well, let's talk about one of the biggest transitions then, which is into parenthood and motherhood. And you talk about it so beautifully in the book. And I think it's so true what you say. You know, I think we know that we're going to have a child, right? We have nine months. But my experience was that it was utterly different than how I thought it was going to be. Is that what you see a lot with the people that come to you and your discussions around motherhood and parenthood? Yes, I mean, I think the dream of anything, whether it's a sort of full-time committed relationship, whether it's your perfect job, whether it's having a baby, the dream is sort of pink and flowers and sparkly stuff. And the reality, you know, is really hard work. You know, learning to be a mum robs you of more or less every part of your life that you had before. Your sleep, your time, your identity, your focus, your freedom, um, as well as your boob milk, your body as it was before. I mean, Julia just looked at my big boobs as she said that, by the way. <laughs> they look marvellous. So, you know, it's a massive, radical shift and change, which is written about and is known, but I think the discomfort of it, the craziness of it, the tears in it, all of that, and the boredom. Oh, my goodness, the boredom of the nappy changing and the bottles and the relentless sleepness. And what I like in in the book is you share the case studies of some people that you've worked with. And what my experience was and what your experience of the people in the book is that becoming a parent brought up loads of things to the surface. Now, I saw that as an opportunity because I know I can't heal stuff unless it comes up and taps me on the shoulder. But a lot of people that I talk to work with aren't expecting that. Mm-hmm. and find it hugely overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Well, they kind of think that's behind them. You know, one of my other messages in the book is that we carry our past with us 
And a lot of the time that past is kind of quiet and silent. But a big shift will bring back and trigger huge, intense experiences from the past and force us, if we're lucky enough to face them like you did. Well, and not just our past. I love you saying in the book about the generational. We talk about this loads on the podcast. You know, that transgenerational will keep coming up until someone is willing to stop and heal it is what you feel the pain and feel the pain yeah that's really hard to do isn't it especially if you're a new mum and you're sleep deprived why would you I mean that's the paradox of my message and the difficulty is no one blooming wants to feel the pain no no one wants to feel the discomfort and we have amazingly multiple ways of avoiding pain busyness digital stuff alcohol sex I think it's never been easier to numb and avoid do you agree and it's never been easier I mean I think you could you know the previous generations did it post-war extremely well they mainly did it with alcohol and then work occasionally drugs I guess maybe sex but I never really heard about that whereas we have devices I mean our biggest one is devices and busyness I think and there's obviously a lot of drugs and stuff so this paradox then where the only way to move through the pain is to feel it, but we don't want to feel it. I think people listening will really resonate with that place. I know I've been in that place. What do you do in that place where you're like, I'm aware or I have a slight clink of awareness that I'm numbing and I don't want to feel it, but I'm maybe I've never felt those big feelings before. I know the first time I really started to feel my feelings, I felt like I was going to die. Did you feel suffocated? Yeah, like, <gasps> because I never felt them. I mean, I think one of the things, I mean, it's the title of the book, is to remember it changes. It is like the weather. So that big wave that hit you, if you breathe in and you let it run through your system, it has a natural life of its own. So it comes up, it has a peak and it drops away and you have to just breathe. If you don't fight it, if you don't try and fix it, let it come through your system and I'm talking about lots of things you can do to support yourself to kind of hold yourself steady as the wave hits through you but if you squash it down and sort of stamp on it it comes back with greater force and also the other thing is that you can't block pain without incrementally blocking your capacity to feel joy because your bandwidth affects each other so what you do to block pain means that you block your joy so you live you function fine you breathe in and out but you live within a very limited bandwidth and I think that's certainly something I saw with my parents generation and you probably saw with your I mean your generation younger than me you're the same age as my children so we need to let it kind of burst through us otherwise we shrink and we all know people that you kind of think you know, if I tap them, is that an armour? Is, is, is it a box? Is there someone in there? And it's because they've squashed and they've squashed and they've squashed. And also there's this kind of tang of resentment that comes through that you talk about very well in your podcast. You know, that you, you kind of taste it in their mouth. There's a lot of blame that goes on. There's a lot of kind of bitterness that goes on. And none of us want to be that person. Yeah. What was your transition like to motherhood? You've got four children. I've got four children and six grandchildren. So mine was incredibly young. So I was 21 when I had my daughter. Wow, same as my mum-in-law. I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't really know what I was feeling. So I was 
kind of blissfully ignorant. There were none of the books and podcasts. Were you living in that narrow lane that you just described? I was living very successfully in the narrow lane. You know, I functioned very well. I always really, really loved my children, but I didn't know about attachment theory. I didn't know about child development. I read Penelope Leach, who was the person then, but that was more about their milestones of sort of walking and talking and when they should be potty trained. It wasn't really about this reciprocal attunement and relationship that they have then an internal working model of what they've seen in my face. I mean, I knew none of that. So I was a sort of loving mum, but an ignorant mum who was also young and busy. So I didn't want to give up work, so I stayed working and... I definitely left lots of injuries on my children, which we have worked through. And I started being a better mum when I started training as a therapist when I was 30. So that's 30 years ago. So there are lots of things I wish I could do differently, which I wish I'd known then that I didn't know. Mm. And I think every mum feels that way. Yeah. But, you know, you can I have all the knowledge in the world, can't you? And it's, you know... It feels a physical pain. I mean, I so, know... Oh, yeah. Do your children talk about it? Oh, yes, we talk about it. I'm very, very lucky. I have an amazing relationship with all of my children and my in-laws, all the people they've married. And they're very forgiving and loving and accepting and... You talk about that in the book about family and the difference between a functional family and a dysfunctional family. Can you expand on that? Because I know, I know that's my deep desire... I come from a dysfunctional family, yes. generations of dysfunction. Yes. I really, really just want a functional <laughs> unit more than anything. So I think a functional family isn't one that is the sort of Walton's, this perfect family where everyone smiles, is nice to each other. I think that's dysfunction. I mean, that's, yes, what, that's the fake. The yeah. fake. The cornerstone of a functional relationship is that fundamentally you know your family is your team and that they're on your side. And even if you have a fight for territory, you don't try and knock each other out for that territory. So you don't try and annihilate. So one of the biggest problems in families is this territory of love. It's the kind of Mm. underground bit that nobody sees of wanting attention and love and needing to belong. So a functional family is one that communicates openly and honestly. So they can say the difficult things, allow the difficult things, have a fight be honest in the fight and repair. And the big thing is being honest in the fight. That doesn't mean obliterating someone. That means fighting with assertion, but not attack and, and annihilation. So fight, you know, being honest respectfully and repairing after the fight. The big thing is repair. Mm. But often what happens in dysfunctional families is they have the same fight for decades and they know. So no one's taking responsibility. No one takes responsibility and no one sorts it out. And every fight brings back the previous fight. And there's the intent to knock them out with your words and walk away. And then there's this gaping hole that's left in the ground in the family that never gets filled. So then you kind of pretend everything's okay the next time you meet up. But there's a narrowing and there's a fragmenting that never gets sorted. Whereas, you know that thing, if you've had a really difficult conversation with someone, you've both been furious and then you both cry and then you both kind of do the bit of understanding and the shift of understanding and then you both own your bit in it. Yeah. And then you have a hug. You actually feel closer to them. Mm. You love them more because mm. you've been through that whole mm. thing. Yeah, especially, you know, even with my four-year-old. Yeah. Someone said to me, someone on the podcast, I can't remember, that love is made in the repair. Yeah. 
And that's what strengthens the love is the repair. Because yes. some of my coaching clients will say to me, God, I'm so worried. We keep arguing. And I say, well, there's nothing. That is not what causes dysfunctional families. You're mm-hmm. saying quite the opposite. It's actually healthy arguing. And then the children can see or experience the repair. But also remember, as the parent, you hold the power. So as the parent, it is your responsibility to acknowledge what you've done wrong yeah to make the repair and I think that's still true as a parent you know I've got four adult children now and I think as a parent you have a lot of power because in some level they're always your child I mean my children are super powerful so I mean <laughs> I'm saying this I'm not sure if I completely believe it because they are so powerful but I know the fact as in emotional they're confident and they know what they think and they say it okay but fundamentally I'm always their mum so I always have that extra level of them being a child with me which you don't want you know you have to recalibrate the relationship with an adult child but I would say that if I had a fight with one of my children and there was a standoff me as the parent even though I'm 60 and they're 38 say it would be my job to go and fight for the relationship well, yeah it's such a good point the parent is always the parent and I got taught that in therapy very early on when one of my parents was going through something horrendous and I was trying to parent and this very yeah. wise therapist said to me your parent is always your parent yeah. however damaged they might be in that moment or struggling in that moment you have to remain the child I think you can be an adult child which recalibrates it Yes. So when I'm with my adult children now, you know, they boss me around and tell me what to do. And I listen because there's lots of stuff they know better. Than yes. Me. Yes. So the power dynamic has definitely shifted and it will shift, you know, in 20 years, probably much more power than me. I look at my children and I worry about them like they're five. Do you? Yeah. Because you say in the book that with adult children, one of the most important things is to let them be who they are yeah, without projecting. Sure. And I think that's true for four-year-olds. People, four-year-olds. You know, my four-year-old at the moment is going through a phase where she will only wear head-to-toe sparkly pink. Oh. But <laughs> it's, so not, it's so not me. And I'm no. like, I really wanted this gender-neutral, you know, greys. Exactly. And she wants to wear sparkly. cheap, sparkly, bright. And I just, I can notice my control. But I don't do it because I've got the awareness. awareness. Why do we find it so hard to not project our hopes, wants, dreams, desires onto our children? I think, of course, we're going to have hopes and dreams for our children. You know, they're physically part of us. And as mothers, they came out of us. So Mm. I don't think it's about not having hopes and dreams. But I think it's also holding the other side of that and allowing them to be who they are. And when you impose your failed hopes and dreams, maybe on them then you're smothering them or you know reducing them so it's having both and you want to believe that they can have their potential and that you know we all have our value system I don't think it's about denying who we are or what we believe or what we want but it's also having another voice that redresses the balance when we kind of want to push too much it's just that space of awareness isn't it and you talk about resilience that you think building resilience in our children for you, is one of your really important values. Firstly, why? What is it about resilience that you find so important? And have you successfully done that in your four children? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Life is difficult. You know, we are very privileged in life. You know, we're not in Syria. We're very privileged. We're super privileged. 
And yet we all have our challenges and things we find difficult. And life will always give us challenges, whether it's you lose a job, you have difficulty getting pregnant again, your best friend is horrible to you, you have a car crash, a bicycle crash. There will always be things that happen that test you and push you. And resilience is, without being armoured and cut off, it is the flexible muscle and kind of trampoline inside you that allows you to feel the pain of it, express the pain of it and the difficulty of it, and find a way of living with it and bouncing back and moving forward. So it's a sort of bandwidth that is strong but sensitive and allows you to kind of face difficulty but move forward to not be kind of totally um, wiped out by it. They've had some tough times, some of my children, some really tough times that they faced for a long time. Were they resilient? I mean, I think the thing they felt a lot. Yes, in the end, they got the help that they needed and they came through and they're doing well. So I guess they are resilient. If you're one of your adult children, or even, I guess, because you were 30 when you trained in this field, something that I sometimes struggle with, I'm a coach, not a psychotherapist, but... But you might go on to be a trainer as a psychotherapist. Well, maybe. How did you maintain that mother as opposed to going into the professional space? Was that a challenge for you when they would come to you with a problem? Because I I sometimes find that hard, especially when my husband comes to me with a problem and I can sort of see how I would coach him through it, but I have to not do that. It's too annoying. Yeah, it's so annoying. He's like, I don't want, I don't want Coach Zoe, I want my wife. He says it to me all the time. (laughs) Take the voice off and the head. head. (laughs) Or I'll say, what do you think? You know, he he can tell when I, it annoys him greatly. I mean, so I think the experience and the training can inform you about how you react and what you say because it gives you a filter. But, you know, these are the people that you love. This is a very different relationship. And what they want from you is very different. Mm. They want you to love them. They want you at times to rescue them. They want you to do the things that you don't do for clients. They want your connection that you care far more than you would for a client. They want you to be affected by them. They want you to show that you're affected by them. It's a completely different relationship. But you can use the wisdom and the knowledge for yours and their help. Mm. The word. I can't think of the word. Mm. Their benefit. Mm. And I wanted to just move it on to talk about fathers because yes. you have a brilliant section in the book. There's a story of a father, Lucas, is it? Lucas, yeah. New dad. Tell us a bit about that because I think that's really interesting for people to hear. So Lucas was very much a modern dad. He had an older partner who they had an amazingly kind of vibrant and passionate relationship that had been going on for a few years before. They committed and then they committed and it took them three years of infertility to have a baby. So that is a lot of wear and tear on the partnership. Then they had this amazing baby that they were completely thrilled with. And he he had lots of different reactions. I mean, one was, which you talk about in your podcast, it brought up his relationship with his mum and dad and they were the kind of roadmap of what he didn't want to be. Right. So one of the things, as you talk about in your podcast, is that it brought up his relationship and how he'd been parented. And one of his parents came out as gay when he was in his mid-twenties. So he kind of felt he'd been gaslit through his childhood, like, what do I trust, what's true, what's not true? And also he'd been brought up that everything that you see has to be good and shiny, but everything you feel 
kind of stays under the surface. Well, I relate. (laughs) (laughs) So he wanted to be an authentic dad. He wanted to be an involved dad. But it completely challenged his relationship with his partner. And her big thing with him was she was the bigger breadwinner and she wanted to work less and get him out earning more. But he was a writer. He was an artist. And he wanted to stay as an artist. So, you know, it pressed every button. I think so many people listening relate to just, maybe not the story, but that you you throw a child in and, like you said, everything. What you earn, who you are, your relationship, your relationship with your past, and what does your future look like? And And then in-laws, then you've got in-laws also, which I hear about a lot, is another grenade to throw in. There's quite a bit about that in my book too. So he had a lot of stuff to work out and really... It wasn't rocket science. It was the talking it through. It was the clarifying it for himself. It was letting him know what he really believed. Letting him know what he felt really proud of as a dad. He did the food for their little baby once he was weaned. And that was very empowering for him. So he kind of experimented and tried things. And as with all change, you know, it starts with a lot of discomfort and pain. But if you allow it to come through your system, you explore it and unpick it and have a look at what's going on, it then very naturally just integrates as part of your system. Mm. So it was, it was lovely to work with. So what advice would you give? I know it's hard because, as you say, everyone is so different. But at that new parenthood point that Lucas and his partner were at the book, where, as we've been saying, everything gets thrown up, what can mothers, parents, anyone listening do to ease that transition? And Rachel going back to work, that was... Yes, yeah. I think the first one is to acknowledge it's really difficult and that it brings up lots and lots of feelings, lots of mixed messages... At a time when you're sleep deprived and it's time. It's cruel, isn't it? Yeah. Someone I interviewed said it's nature's cruelest trick. That when the stakes are really high for child development, you're or arguably you're worse. Yeah. And you don't have control. You may have a baby that isn't feeding well, that isn't sleeping well, you know, you may have a baby that kind of constantly gets colds, all of those things. So I think the other thing is to know that you have power over yourself, but you don't have power over everything around you. To kind of that AA thing of let God and let go, kind of acknowledge what you can change, acknowledge what you can't change and have the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. And that this is a phase. You know, the first six months, probably the toughest. After the first year, it really changes. And keep your skyline short. So, you know, keep it in the day. You wake up. You've been woken four times in the night. You don't think you're going to get through to lunch, but you're imagining this is my life forever. I'm never going to get my life back. Just get yourself to the afternoon. Get yourself to the evening. Get yourself to bed that night. You know, try and keep what you imagine as short as possible because you can do another few hours. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? Well, I'm in 12-step recovery, so I get that whole one day at a time, and that really helped me. Yeah, really, it helps me now. It's helping me today. You know, yeah. one, one thing at a time. What have I got to do next? What have I got to do next? If I let my mind zoom forward to next week, next month, next year, not in a controlled way, but in an uncontrolled, let it go off, I'm pretty much done for because it will just project fear and worry. Yeah, because you're trying to use your brain to have agency over something that you know you have no, no control yeah. over. Yeah. 
Well, you do have control over what's happening in this moment. Well, it's the only place we do, isn't it? Which is the Eckhart Tolle. Yes, yes. You know, yes. the power of now. Yeah. So what else would you say? You know, you've got these years and years of wisdom and you've sat in front of, I imagine, every type of person and problem. And, yes. you know, and being a mother four times yourself. What else do you think is really important? You know, lots and lots of mums will be listening to this. What do you think? I think the thing of knowing yourself and being self-compassionate. I think because our smartphones are so responsive and speedy, we kind of think everything's going to work like that. And that parenthood is messy. It's not fast. And the adaptation process takes much longer than we think. So, you know, research shows that the level of the change, if it's something that has radically altered your life, will have the biggest effect, obviously. So if it's a small thing, it has a small effect. A big thing has a big effect. And it's likely to take a year to 18 months for you to integrate it. You know, that is a long old time. And I think we expect, like, I'm going to do five steps. I'm going to do ten things. I'm going to do my meditation. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to do a run or have some yoga. And I'm going to eat vegan. And then my life is going to be tidy. I've ticked all the boxes. And, of course, that does support you, you know, what you eat, what you do. Well, it builds that resilience. It, does it doesn't stop resilience. the pain. It doesn't stop the pain. And yeah. it doesn't mean that your child doesn't wake up at four in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So it supports you to manage it. But the thing I kind of hear is this perfectionism of, I'm doing everything right, I've done everything, I've read the books, I've done the blogs, I've read everything. (laughs) And she's not doing it. She's still not sleeping. Then it goes back to, I must be doing something wrong. Yeah. Or the baby's doing something. What's wrong with you? What is wrong with you, baby? I hear parents saying that in playgroups sometimes. What's wrong with you? When they won't share or... It's so shaming, isn't it? It really triggers me when I hear that. But I hear that quite a lot. It's kind of recognising as human beings, we're messy and chaotic and we're not machines. And to allow that, to allow that in ourselves, to allow it in our children and to support ourselves through it. It's the ultimate surrender, isn't it? That's what I found. And that you need the love and connection to others. So the other absolutely universal message in my book is the thing that we need most to survive difficulty is the love and connection to us. Is relationships. Is relationships. Our relationship with ourselves primarily, and then our relationship, if we've got a good one with ourselves, building a good relationship with a lot of people in your life, not just your partner and the the Mm. father of Mm. your Mm. child or the mother Mm. of your child. You know, people matter. People need people. You need your girlfriends. You need your boyfriends. You need your work colleagues. We need connection proper visceral connection because that's what feeds our soul it feeds our minds and it feeds our heart and that helps us weather the sleepless nights and the fury and 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 do you think the social media it's harder to get that connection or easier because we can connect to more people I mean, I'm not against social media at all. I think it's about being realistic about what social media can do. So the dopamine hit is like a drug. So it Mm. gives you like a piece of chocolate. It doesn't go to your soul. No. So if it means that you have contact with a school friend that you haven't seen for years, who you really like, you then go and meet for a cup of coffee and you rebuild your friendship. That's an amazing thing. But if you're looking for numbers of followers in your self-esteem... You're on an absolute high rate enough. Or if you're just scrolling, feeling like you're connecting. But you're not. You can't possibly. Yeah. 
What I find so interesting, I watched this TED talk, I'm sure you've seen it, where it's the only long, proper longitudinal study on what makes Harvard. people... Like, yes. Robert Walden. Robert, Robert, yeah, of course it is. Maybe that's where I then went and watched it. Yes. But what I found so profound about that is, I'll put a link to it in the show Thank notes, you. because it's brilliant. And they followed these men, and then later added in women, women. for 75 plus years, and found that the number one determinant of how happy someone was with relationships. Yeah, so not only were they happier, people who had good, loving relationships, and it was primarily their love relationships, but all their relationships Mm. were happier, Mm. were wealthier, Mm. were healthier. They lived longer. They had better memories. They had less pain. And if people had a divorce and then had a good relationship, they got the benefits. So it's not about never... You know, that you can. Yeah, and it's not about staying married, for example. It's finding a good, reliable, loving relationship, and that that is the predictor of good outcomes because you work better, you're wealthier, healthier, every aspect of your life. And that, of course, is generation, isn't it? Because children learn what relationships look like from looking up at the relationships their parents have, whether they're together or not, the relationships, the. Yeah, it's modelled for them. And the other bit that I didn't add was that their children are happier and their children are more likely to have good relationships. So it's horribly convincing, but also pressure. But I think it means Mm. that we need to work at our relationships. And, you know, one of the studies in the book that I also talked about was that this idea of the one, that there's this kind of, for women, this prince or, you know, your other half that's going to make you whole. And what the research Mm. found was that actually it isn't the one, it's that you make the relationship. That works for you. Oh, that's so... Why don't we teach this to <laughs> young girls? I mean, I'm sure you two have to see your children, but yeah. I loved it in the introduction you said, I've had to adapt to the many marriages I've had all to the same man. Yeah, 40 years. Tell us about that. Well, it's our 40th wedding anniversary in about two weeks. Congratulations. Um, thank you. You know, I was 20 when we married and I had good instincts, I think, but I knew nothing. And so those first 10 years were him building his career, me having four kids and working, finding out about each other. But, you know, it was I love that. The first 10 years. I'm on, like, year seven and I feel like I've already, like, climbed a mountain. Yeah, so there was quite a few mountains. And then it was having older children, teenage children, me training to be a therapist, him still working very hard, travel quite a bit. And building our friendship network, so building our life and who we lived and how we lived. And then the sort of 30th year of our marriage, our children began to leave home. He worked a bit differently. I was working differently, but intensely I had helped start this charity. So it's just how much time we spent together and how we were with each other. The focus of it has changed dramatically. And now, you know, we live in a flat and not a family house. And we have more time for each other. We have a lovely relationship. I'm not hating sometimes, but I've never not wanted to be with him. In that intensity, I know Guy gets the worst of me, you know, particularly with young children and raising a family and the pressures. And I just, I love the perspective that you're giving here. Yeah, I mean, I hate it, but I never, I, you know, indifference. How did you know know that you always wanted? Did you have moments where you thought, F this, I'm... No. Interesting. Never. Never. No. I wanted to kill him or run him over, but I never wanted to leave him because I didn't feel indifferent. I was hooked. You know, the opposite of love is not caring at all. 
So yes. hating him is this other end of love, right? Yes. It's just that, and normally it was more about me than him. I mean, he's not that long. <laughs> it's always about us, isn't it? Yeah. That's the truth. But I think that's a switch that went in my head, that once I committed, that was it. And I just didn't... And we, did your parents have a successful marriage? They had. A, they stayed together. No, they, had, they didn't have a successful marriage. If you think about happiness and how to be in a relationship, not at all. No. So you didn't have the modelling? No, no. I had the absolute reverse. I learned what I didn't want from my family. Wow. But I think it helped that I was that committed. I didn't think there would be anything better. Yeah. I really didn't think there was anything better. And I wanted us to make it work for us. And so that was my mindset. Was It was a growth mindset that we were going to make it work. He's a really nice guy. He's really kind. He's got the same values as me. He's always nice to me. I mean, I annoy him and, you know, all of that. But he's fundamentally good and respects me and, you know, always wants me to do well and supports me. So he's, you know, I've got a good... Yeah, I relate. Why would I change it? When we were engaged, we had therapy because I said to Guy I have no blueprint will you come and help you know let's go and, and it was the, one of the best things we ever did we did six sessions of couple therapy when we, we were engaged of well oh, we then went and did <laughs> more but this is when we were engaged and the therapist said to me she said the thing is is that you're going to have to do a shit ton of work whoever you're married to it's not going to be easy so do you want to do that work with the man sat next to you and my instant thought was absolutely because yeah. I knew he'd want to do it with me yeah and that's how I then felt really confident going into yeah. the marriage because I thought, here's someone who's willing, you know, who sat with me in a therapist room, you know, he was yeah, willing yeah. to... And that you grow and change together. Yeah. You know, there are times that you're further apart, times when you're really annoyed with each other, times where there's a lot of pressure on the relationship. But there's that fundamental commitment that you just stick with it. Mm. In some ways, I'm amazed that so 42% of marriages break up, 58% of marriages survive. It's quite a lot survive. Mm. But isn't the stat breaks it down further? Isn't it only 13% of those are happy? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. That's tiny. Yeah, would describe themselves as happily married. I was doing some research on it the other really? day. Yeah. Cohabiting couples split up more, but that's sort of self-selective. It's very interesting, isn't it? very interesting so I mean I think my message I have tons of flaws and made millions of mistakes as a mum and as a partner but if I have a message and any kind of wisdom it's you have to do the work well, that's yeah. what mother kind's about really yeah it's about giving people some springing off points in which to do some work take responsibility yeah do the work learn yeah and is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you want that you I mean I mean obviously there's a whole amazing book basically you need to go and get the book because it is incredible but is there anything right now that's coming to you that you think is important to share before we wind down I mean I think the combination of your love relationships really matter that give them the time and effort that they really deserve and that includes yourself I think the Winnicott term a good enough mother is a really good abiding wisdom that we would always make mistakes but it's about repairing and being kind to ourselves and that we always will grow and change and allow yourself to grow and change by supporting yourself through it rather than blocking yourself Mm. 
from it. I think that's what the big takeaway from me is from the book and this conversation is it's such a platitude to say isn't it change is the only constant and you hear it all the time and it's you know those quote cards on Instagram but actually knowing that in your heart is really yeah. different. And Authentically living it. Is yes different. very different and actually being able to be face kind to ourselves and face the discomfort. Yeah and allow it to change us and heal us. It does both. So the other side of the discomfort is healing. Yeah. So if you kind of weather it, you do come out the other side. Well, someone said to me when I was early in my recovery, everything that you want is on the other side of your fear. Yeah. And it was true. It was really true. But it's true. God, it's hard walking through that first bit. Yeah. Or the, not the first bit, all of it. Susan Jeffers, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Oh, I does. love that book. I love it's that great book. book. I read it every year. Do you? I've read it every year for 12 well, years. Well, that's where that quote comes from, isn't it? The other side of your fear. I don't know. Yeah. And actually, it's all in the title. You virtually don't need to read the book. Yeah. I mean, do read the book. <laughs> do read the book. <laughs> but, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway. I think I'm over on a different subject. I'm saying feel the fear and you will grow and change and be happier. Mm. Such a good takeaway message. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think it would be to listen to themselves with kindness and kind of learn from what the different messages are saying. Know themselves. Don't distract themselves. Beautiful. Thank you. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also, just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.